entitled our time, uh, Encouraging One Another. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for uh, the space and the time and the technology to remain connected and to gather with your people. Thank you for being a God who takes what we give to you by way of our offerings. And you have put people in place to help us steward these things to your glory and your honor. And through what your people give, you build and establish your kingdom even here on earth. Thank you for that. Thank you for being a good king who is not only building your kingdom around us, but through your word and through your spirit and through these means of grace, you are also building us up in it that we might be fit for glory. Father, I pray that the reading of your word and now the preaching of your word would do just that, that it would build up your body and that it would present your bride back to you having been washed with the word perfect and blameless in your sight would you do this through your servant i pray in jesus name amen there's a lot going on in this passage and i want to hone in on that phrase at the end where paul actually says encourage one another with these words We'll look at the entire section in its context, but I want to just kind of let you know from the gate that, that I want to be dealing with this idea of encouragement. There's a meme that I came across uh, about a year and a half ago, and I've asked the tech team to put it on the screen. And it's a meme by H.B. Uh, Charles. H.B. Charles is a pastor in Florida, Florida, and uh, he has this uh, on-preaching podcast where he likes to come alongside younger preachers and just to help them and help us sort of grow in this gift. But, but uh, a year and a half ago, he put this meme up. And if you see it, uh, there's a horse that on the rear of the horse, right, the tail and, and the hind legs, I mean, the detail and the precision uh, is beautiful. And then the more and more you sort of get towards the, the, the front or the face, uh, it starts to kind of move into a, a stick figure-like drawing. And if you look at the bottom, uh, th there's the, a timeline. 
And the timeline begins on the bottom left. It's Monday morning. And then on the bottom right, it moves over to, to Saturday. And he's applying this principle to sermon prep. And here's what he's saying. For all of us who have to preach the word of God faithfully week in and week out, that usually around Monday, we're, we're feeling pretty good. At Monday or Tuesday, we're feeling pretty good about God's grace. We're feeling pretty good about working within the text and, and, and really high ambitions that this thing is going to be a, a killer sermon, right? And then he says, like, life just kind of happens. And, and by the time it's time to preach, that, that, that what you thought and, and how you started, it it's usually doesn't work that way. It, it's perception versus reality. And I would make the case to you that you could apply the, the, the framework of this meme, not just to sermon prep, you can apply to what it's like to get paid at the first of the month, right? First of the month on the far left, you can go buy steak, you can buy shrimp, you can get all of these things that you like. And then by the end of the month, I mean, you're eating like tuna fish out of a can, right? Or maybe this is your perception of what the Christian life would be when you be, were, was a new Christian, that you saw yourself as holy and you set out to do big things for the Lord, and maybe you wanted to write books or have this many followers or pastor a church this large, and then life kind of sets in, and by the time you're done with your life, if you're like me, man, I just want to make it to the finish line and limp over and make it into glory to be with Jesus. What he's getting at is his perception and reality, or what he's getting at is, is how we start can be really, really well and then over time, things can get hard. This is also akin to the Christian life. That David in Psalm 23, he speaks of, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me to green pastures, to still waters, to paths of righteousness. This is David talking about the good times of life. And then David says, But I'll walk through valleys. And things will get hard. I'll eventually make it home to the house of God forever, but the journey home will be mountaintops and it will be valleys. That's a good frame for our passage, especially in the context of the entire book. That this church experienced the same phenomenon. Things started really, really well and really, really, really powerful. And by the time you get to chapter 4 of the book, you're starting to see what the wear and tear and time in this world, what it's doing to the souls of these believers. They're going from being highly encouraged in their faith to what we see in our passage, a season of discouragement. Have you been there? Not on the mountaintops, but in the valleys where discouragement sets in, where it feels like you're hanging on by a thread. That's what's going on in our passage. Now, I want you to envision uh, a hamburger. Hamburger has a bun, and then it has meat, and then it has bun, a bun at the bottom. That's kind of the way that I want to look at the passage. I want to look at the first verse, right, verse 13. That's going to form our first point. Um, and then I want to look at verse uh, 
18, which is the, the bottom bun. That's going to form our second point. And then I want to spend our third point sort of looking at verses 14 through 17. That, that, that's kind of the meat, but I don't want to ignore verse 13 or verse 18. So what's the first point? Discouragement will come. And we see that in, in, in verse 13. Now, for context, I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 5 through 7. This is the opening of this book. And in those verses, here's what Paul writes. He says, our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in the, in the power of God and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. And listen to what he writes. He says, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia, and you turned from your idols to serve the true and living God and to await the return of Jesus from heaven. That's the start of this church. Paul says the gospel came in power, and those non-believers were converted. They turned from their idols and the ways of the city that they were in, and they turned to Jesus, and they were imitators first and foremost of Jesus and also of Paul. And he put them up on a pedestal and said, you were examples for all the believers in that region. That's a good start to the Christian life. They're imitating Jesus, imitating Paul. And then, if you look at chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, something is happening. There's a thread that Paul is sort of plucking in chapter 4. And that thread is this. The ones who started well, who turned from the idols of the city, in chapter 4, He's warning them because they're regressing. They're starting to not be imitators of Paul and not be imitators of Jesus. They're starting to imitate outsiders and Gentiles. Let me show it to you. Look at chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. Paul is speaking of abstaining from sexual immorality. He says, do not live in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And so here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that them who imitated Christ and Paul are now moving or in danger of moving to imitating the Gentiles around them. And, 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 it, and it's showing itself through their sexual immorality. But then go down to verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4. He has to tell them to live quietly and mind your own affairs and work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before the outsiders. There it is again. They're starting to give the name of Jesus a bad rap because we think that either some of them have been abusing the generosity of the church or they were trying to hustle in Thessalonica and not have an honest living. And Paul says, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not how we taught you. He says, work with your own hands and be dependent upon no one so far as you can do it that the outsiders might not see the gospel tainted. 
And then you get to our passage in verse 13. He's continuing the same theme. So it's not just sexual immorality. It's not just not working. We're starting to see that they're also slipping in their grief. We can look like the world, not just in how we live. Paul is actually saying we can look like the world in how we grieve the dead. Look at verse 13. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. You see what Paul is saying? Now, what is meant by that phrase, grieving as those who have no hope? Who is he talking about? He's talking about those in the city of Thessalonica who did not know the saving work of Jesus. Which makes us have to answer this question. If you were a non-Christian in Thessalonica in Paul's day without hope, what would grieving the dead look like? Thessalonica was a diverse city. It was predominantly Greek. We think that it was a city of 100,000 people. It was uh, along a major trade route, that it was the key to all of Macedonia. It was a melting pot of culture, of language, of trades, of ethnic groups, and also religion. And so we learn from Acts 16 that Jews were there. We also have records that, that, that Samaritans were there. We also know that through the work of Paul, Christians were there. And what those three groups have in common, they were monotheistic. They believed in one true God. However, they were the minority of the city. That Greek ideas prevailed and there was constant pressure on the monotheist towards syncretism. Y'all don't really believe that. Why don't your God, why can't he just be in our pantheon of other gods? Why can't we intermix and intermingle our beliefs that, 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 that one scholar went there and he spent two years, his name is Stephen Pothoff, and, and here's what he studied. He studied the afterlife in early Christian Carthage. And by going to Carthage and, and, and uncovering and studying what happened there and the views of the dead, we're able to make an assessment of what we think it would have been like in the city of Thessalonica. How did they view the dead? How did they grieve? First of all, we, we, know, we know these things. One, that when someone died in, in that culture in that day, Non-believers would put coins on the eyes of the dead. Some would even put coins in the mouth of the dead. Because in their belief system that the dead needed help making it into the 
afterlife. And so they would literally put money there. They also believed that if you put money in the dead, then that money could be spent to pay for any of the offenses so that this person could make it into an afterlife if there was a such thing as an afterlife. In that culture, birthday parties were held for the deceased. And, and, and they're, they're in their tombs, they had a, a hole, and there was what we call a libation tube that came out of the tomb where on the birthdays of the dead, people would literally go to the cemetery and pour libations down the tube, pour out wine and, and send food down the tube in this weird way of, of trying to sort of connect with the dead. And we've seen that in our culture, right? Tupac has a song, Pour Out a Little Liquor. We've heard of people who, before they drink a 40, will pour a little out onto the ground. Why? Because th there is some, something is going on with this belief, this, this system of thought of, of, of how we grieve in the dead. There was something called paralentalia, which was February the 13th through February the 21st. It was eight days in which all the temples of Thessalonica were closed. There could be no weddings, and, and the families would literally gather at the tomb of the dead to commune with them. The spirits of the dead were sometimes thought to stay and to kind of hover in the, the cemetery. Then there was other competing ideas that, that says there is no afterlife. I was, I am not, and I will be no more. And then Roman piety consisted in this scrupulous reverence for the dead, which moved people to make shrines in their homes and to pray less, right? If they didn't do this and the family forgot about the dead, then that person would be forgotten about in the afterlife and would cease to exist no more. And this is what, what, what Pixar is sort of tapping into in, in, in the movie Coco. And he goes on to say that Gentiles would have found this whole idea of the resurrection that Paul speaks of more than strange. It would have sounded like corpses standing up rather than some positive form of the afterlife they were used to the Greek notion of the immortality of the soul, but that did not include the notion of a person coming back from the dead in a new and improved and glorified body. And so all of this is sort of behind what Paul is saying. We don't want you to grieve as those do who have no hope. This is what the grief process looked like. If you didn't know Jesus, in the city of Thessalonica in Paul's day. There's the pressure, right? These believers who have lost people and lost family members. You know what happens at funerals? Families come back together and you see people you probably haven't seen in a while. 
And there's competing ideas about the dead and about life and what happens after death. And Paul seems to be saying is, I know that death is working a number on you, and I don't want you to grieve like them. I don't want you going down this path like them. I want you to be encouraged. But they're in danger. They're now imitating the world around them, and the city around them, and not the Lord Jesus, and not that of the church. They're discouraged. Death has kind of rocked them. And I'd imagine that we all have had those type of seasons where our conduct doesn't look becoming of the gospel, where our hope is shaken where we begin to think and behave more like those who don't know Jesus than those who do. This is a part of the journey. What do we need when those moments come? Which leads us to our second point. We need biblical encouragement. And that's what you see at the end of our passage. Notice what Paul says. In light of them grieving as others do who have no hope and becoming discouraged, look at the command right there in verse 18. He says, encourage one another. That's what we need when we're discouraged. We need biblical encouragement. Now, what do we not need? I don't think we need to minimize discouragement. I don't think we need to deny it or feel ashamed or embarrassed by it. It's tempting to put on a front and to grit our teeth and to act like we're always encouraged, to act like we're always strong, to act like we always see clearly. And I, I just don't think that that can happen on this side of eternity. But what do we need? We need encouragement. I think 1 Thessalonians is the epistle of encouragement. Paul not only says it in, in chapter 4, verse 18, but look down at chapter 5, verse 11. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Look down at chapter 5, verse 14. He says, and we urge you, brother, admonish the idle, but encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And, and, and at the beginning of the book, in chapter 2, verse 12, this is how Paul described his own ministry. He says, we exhorted each one of you and we encouraged you. You get that? And biblical encouragement, it flows out of brotherly love. This is why in chapter 4, he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you have been taught to love one another, and that is what you are doing. But we urge you to do this more and more. And right after he urges them to love one another more and more, the first thing he tells them to do is encourage one another. In other words, biblical encouragement, this one anothering, that, that it, it's an overflow of true Christian love for the body. 
And if it's a command, which it is, then it means at least these three things. First, Paul does not say, encourage yourself. He actually says, encourage one another. I think what he's getting at is our weakness and our need for the body of Christ. He's saying we need one another. You know some of these verses, right? Words from a friend can be trusted. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls down, who has no one to help him up. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. The Bible is saying we are in need of the body. Secondly, I think what Paul is getting at is that this idea of encouragement when a believer is discouraged, I would make the case that it's actually a right and a privilege entitled to every person who names the name of Jesus. In our military, there's this, this, this phrase, no soldier left behind. And because you are a member of the American military, if we go to war and there's a casualty in another land, that our soldiers have been trained to not leave the body there. But because they are a citizen of the United States and a member of the armed forces, we have a right to bring that body home. Do you believe that? That when Jesus engrafted you into his family, that it comes with rights and privileges so that when you're going in left field and when you can't see Jesus clearly and when you're discouraged, Paul is actually saying, we who are encouraged, we the body of Christ, we owe them that. And third... It means that a day is coming, not only when we might find ourselves needing encouragement, but when God expects us to be on the giving side of encouragement. It means that as we think about life here in the church, we cannot have this perpetual view of ourselves that the church is here to serve me, that I'm here to get my needs met, that I'm going to be discouraged and I have a right to expect that the church will encourage me and be there for me. Yes and amen, that is true, but the flip side is also true. That Jesus has put us all in the game. Well, we're not only granted the privilege of receiving encouragement, but we all need to view ourselves in this new identity that we have in Christ, that we're also on the giving end of encouragement. Now, there's a case study. I want to take the Apostle Paul as an example because I would want to make the case to you that as an apostle, 
who just told us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 that we came and we encouraged you who's commanding them to encourage one another that that there's a paradigm here that, 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 that Paul is simultaneously one who is encouraging and he is also one who has needed encouragement. Think about this. In 1 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is sort of listing what it's like to be an apostle. He says, God has exhibited us as last of all, like men sentenced to death. We are a spectacle to the world, both before angels and men. We are fools. We are weak. We are held in disrepute. We hunger and we thirst. Some of us are homeless. We are poorly dressed and we're tossed to and fro by trials. We are reviled. We are slandered. We are like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. We are afflicted, not crushed. We have been beaten and experienced hardships and shipwreck. Man, that's a lot. And Paul is doing all of that, that he might have a ministry to encourage others. But then in Romans 1, listen to what Paul writes. He says, I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. So that's him on the side of giving strength. But then listen to what he writes, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. What Paul is saying is that all of those beatings and all of those afflictions and all of those shipwrecks and all of those trials, they were wearing on him. They were wearing on him. And he actually writes Romans from Corinth. And he's saying, I need encouragement. Life is hard. And I've been struggling. And the one thing that will encourage my soul is to be in Rome and to bear fruit there and to preach the gospel there and to be mutually encouraged by one another there. And do you know how the book of Acts ends it ends with Paul making it to Rome living there for two years under some form of house arrest but listen to how the book ends and Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense And he welcomed all who came to him, and he proclaimed the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness, without hindrance. In other words, the man who had been hindered, the man who had suffered, the man who needed encouragement, the Lord seems to give him that at the end of his life. He goes to Rome and he has money and he has some type of freedom to preach the gospel. The Lord drew near to the one who gave much encouragement 
he was encouraged by those in Rome. That's what we need when we're discouraged. We need biblical encouragement. Here's the last point. What does it look like? What's the shape of biblical encouragement? And it's going to come to us. Some of this is going to come from a more broader perspective of Scripture. And then I'll hone in on the meat of the text. The first thing we know about biblical encouragement is that it begins by recalling God's past actions. If you remember how 1 Thessalonians is written, did you notice that Paul does not start the letter by immediately going in on them and what is wrong? Do you remember how he started the letter? God worked. The gospel came. You turned from idols and you are his. And you are, were awaiting the arrival of his son. In other words, when Paul starts the letter of encouragement, the first thing he reminds them of is your God has been at work. He's been faithful. He's called you to himself. And that is so important as we think about encouraging people. Our starting point isn't the season that they're in right now. Our starting point is when Jesus became theirs. And Paul would push this even further. Before the foundations of the world, your father has loved you. And he's known you. And he has given you green pastures and still waters and paths of righteousness. And though we're in a small season, it is a small season in the midst of God's bigger redemptive plan. That's encouraging to remember that. The second thing we can learn that, that the source of biblical encouragement is God himself. It's tempting to think that the weight of encouraging one another rests solely on the shoulders of the body and it doesn't. Discouragement is a God thing, and biblical encouragement requires a God-sized solution. That's the reason I had Tommy uh, read from Romans 15. Because in Romans 15, did you notice the, 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 the language there? He says, the strong, here's this word, you have an obligation to bear with the weak, to not look after your own interests, but after the interests of others. And where's the model? Where's the power for that? Paul says, Jesus, for Jesus did not please himself, but he bore the reproaches of his people. Paul saying, Jesus, the strong one, bore with us the weak ones by taking all of our reproaches upon himself, upon a cross. And he says, that's it right there. That's your power. Model your lives around that. But then notice in verse 5, Paul commends them to God. May the God of endurance and encouragement 
That's the phrase I want you to underline. God is the God of endurance, and he's the God of encouragement. Paul says, may he grant you to live this way. What Paul is saying is encouragement is a part of God's character. He's the master encourager. He's the one who tracks Elijah down when he's running and hiding in a cave to encourage him. He's the one who goes and gets Israel out of bondage and brings them back. He's the master encourager. And what Paul is actually saying, if we have any hope in doing this, the first thing we have to remember, this flows out of the nature and heart of God. He wants his people to be encouraged. But it's also true from a syntax standpoint. All right, so I've asked Andre to show this slide. I know it's literally Greek to you when you look at this screen. But it doesn't really take rocket science, a rocket scientist to know that those first two words, one is the verbal form that you use in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 18, also 1 Thessalonians 5 and 11, that that word looks very similar to the word under it, which is the noun form, which we find in John 14, 15, and 16. Now, what's the word? It, it, it's a compound root word, parakaleo. Now, when I say compound, I, I mean that it's two words smushed together to form one word. Well, what's the para? Para means to come alongside. What is kaleo? It means to call out, to comfort, to exhort, to aid, to help, to assist, or to advocate. Now, the word for encourage in the verbal form, it's the first word you see up there. The second word in the noun form, it comes from John 14. Who is that? Thank you, Andre. That word in its noun form is Jesus' way of describing the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the encourager. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside and takes residence inside of his people. The Holy Spirit is the one who reminds us of God's word. He's the one who ministers to our heart. And did you catch what happened? We encourage people because the Holy Spirit is the master comforter. He's the master encourager. And so here is what this means. It means that true biblical encouragement is a ministry of the Holy Spirit to the downcast spirits of God's people by those indwelled by the Spirit. Do you see that this is a God thing first and foremost? 
But the next thing we see about biblical encouragement, that it is best done by those who are proximate to the one needing encouragement. That this book was written well before the internet, well before uh, Facebook and Twitter and all of these things that we enjoy. When Paul wrote, encourage one another, you want to know who he had in mind fulfilling this? Not someone who's a thousand miles away. They can do that. But when he wrote this, he actually meant for those believers in that church or churches to carry about the work of encouraging the discouraged believers in your own midst. The next thing we see about biblical encouragement is that it's saturated with the word of God. I love what Paul says in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another, but he doesn't leave that open-ended. He actually says, encourage one another with these words. In other words, he's not only commanding the act of encouragement, he's also commanding the content of encouragement. And if it's true that those in the church were away because they were at the cemetery grieving like the rest of the world, then when this letter showed up and this letter was read publicly, here is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I want you who hear this word read in the company of the church, I want you to hear it and I want you to remember it. And then I, I want you to go to those who are losing hope. And I don't want you to change the message. I want you to give them these words that I'm giving to you. It, it, it's like he's calling them a postman. Postmen don't have the right to open the letter and alter the contents. That postman, literally, a letter comes to them and they are tasked with putting this same letter that they got from someone else into your mailbox so that you get the same letter that they're delivering that the original sender sent to you. That's what Paul is saying. I don't need you to, to give me or give them some creative stuff. You don't have to try to figure out all the right things. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember my word, and I want my word for, to, to seep down into your heart, and then I want you to encourage them with my word. This is first and foremost a calling, isn't it? To know and meditate on the riches of God's word. There is no encouragement in earthly wisdom. What Paul is saying, use these words I'm giving you. And you go to them. And you tell them that. Do you feel that? We don't have to have all the right answers. We don't have to be infinitely wise. The best way to encourage discouraged people, God's word. And the last sub-point here, and God's word, as we see in this passage, will always give us a restored vision of Jesus. And that's what Paul is unpacking. They're seeing death. 
But Paul wants them to see someone else. And he gives us a lot of ways that Jesus is enough. Here's what he says. The first thing is that death is sleep because Jesus is alive. Did you notice how Paul refers to those who have died in verses 13, 14, and 15? He calls them not those who are dead. He says those who have fallen asleep. This is the same language Jesus uses in John chapter 11 to describe Lazarus to the disciples. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Lazarus was really dead. And the disciples didn't get it. And Jesus had to tell them plainly. But the idea of sleep. 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 Because Jesus has conquered the grave... Those who die in him, Paul says they're asleep. And it pictures the day when Jesus goes to them and he says, wake up. He doesn't have to touch them. And the dead in Christ will wake up. You see what he's doing? He's increasing their vision of Jesus. He says, death cannot threaten the security we have in him. We are embodied creatures. Our soul resides inside of our bodies. And as long as we're living and breathing on this earth, then those two things are united. But something happens when we die that those two things are for a moment. They're separated and the body goes into the ground. But what about our creatureliness? What about our soul? What happens to it? Paul tells us. We get to go and we get to be with Jesus in a moment. That's why he said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why he told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Yes, your body will be on this cross, but today you will go to the place that I've prepared. And we see it in our passage. Look at verse 14. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead, even so through Jesus, look at this, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He will bring with him. In other words, we believe that the soul of God's people, the moment it leaves this life, it departs to be with Jesus forever. And on that day when Jesus returns, he's not returning alone. He's going to be bringing with him from the heavens those who have died in him. Our security isn't threatened by death because of Jesus. And we will get this same type of glorified body as Jesus. Look at verse 15. We who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so Paul is talking about the day of the Lord when Christ returns in the air with a voice of God and the trumpet, right? Like that, that when that, that, that cataclysmic event happens, some of us will be alive on the earth. And as Jesus descends, he's not coming alone. The souls of those who have died in him will be there. And then notice what Paul says, we who are alive, 
we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we have to wait our turn. And what's going to happen? Look at verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise first. Well, wait a minute. I thought their souls were with him. You know what Paul is talking about? I think he's talking about the bodies of the dead will rise and we who are left will see two things. We'll see Jesus return, but we'll also get to see bodies resurrected out of tombs, and we'll get to see body and soul of, of those who have gone before us united and transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And then verse 17, and then we who are left alive will be suddenly caught up. You hear what he's saying? We're going to get a new body. We have a new future. And then he says, we'll see those who died in Christ again. Verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together. Notice the phrase, with them in the clouds to meet the Lord. That would have been mind-blowing to those reading this letter. Because those who grieve without hope had no certainty they would see loved ones again. And Paul says, oh my God, you're going to see them again in their glorified future versions of themselves. You're going to see them and it's going to be the best family reunion ever. And then, look at verse 17. And we will meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. You feel that? We're going to be with God. We're going to be with Jesus. We're going to inhabit the new heavens and the new earth. And there is no such thing as discouragement. There's no such thing as valleys in the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to have green pastures and still waters and paths of righteousness all the time. It will not, sin will not exist there. And we will get to see the one who has loved us and has given himself for us. He has prepared a place for us. And he says, I will come and get you and I will bring you with me that you may be with me forever. Do you feel how encouraging this would have been to those who were grieving without hope? And all of this is ours because of our union with Christ. There is one time in this passage when Paul does not refer to those who have died as falling asleep. He does that three times, but there is one time when he refers to us as being dead, and it's in verse 16. But notice he doesn't just say, and the dead. He says, the dead in Christ. Those who have died in Christ. This is our theology of our union with Jesus. We have been united to him by faith. He died, we died. He was indwelled by the Spirit, we're indwelled by the Spirit. He was raised, we have been raised to new life. He has ascended to heaven, Paul says, you're in him, you're going home. 
Rankin Wilborn, in his book, Union with Christ, he gives this example, and I'll close with this. He says, I was the smallest player on the field. I was so small, in fact, that when I had the ball, the opposing team had difficulty tackling me because they could hardly see me. And in crucial situations, we had to have, when we had to have yards, our go-to play was called the Refrigerator Right. And it was named after Refrigerator Perry, who played for the Chicago Bears. And on that play, the biggest guy on our team, his name was Andrew. And he was lined up in front of me as a blocker. And the quarterback handed me the ball, and Andrew was in front of me, and I was behind Andrew. And big old Andrew cut a hole into the line, and I was able to follow him all the way into the end zone. And here's what he writes about it. Everything that was supposed to hit me hit Andrew. He blazed a path for me against the hostile forces of the opposing team. He made a way to glory, and I was hidden in him and behind him. And the Bible says, when those who are in Christ were so intertwined with him that with his life, when he died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised. As he was glorified, we will be glorified. That's encouraging. When our vision of Jesus is expanded and restored, things down here might not always look good. But when we see him for all he is and all he's done, we can say it is well with our souls. This is how we encourage one another, Redeemer. May our encouragement have this shape to it. And I'd imagine in moments like this pandemic, we need it now more than any. If you're strong and God has served you, and you can see him clearly, would you consider how you might be an encouragement to those who aren't having such a fruitful time? And if you are in need of encouragement, we would love to sit with you, pray with you, pray scripture over you, and make Jesus more believable and more beautiful. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this command and thank you for the power to live this way. It flows out of our union with Jesus. May Redeemer be a church that is known for encouraging one another as an overflow of love. Would you help us do this? I pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Redeemer, receive our benediction, and it will come from Romans 15, the passage that Tommy read. May the God of endurance and encouragement, may he grant us to live in harmony with one another 
May he grant us the desire and the power to encourage one another in the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people said, amen. Thank you.